You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, Before helping to plant Providence Church back in 2010, uh, I was in campus ministry. I worked for Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, for almost 20 years on three uh, different university campuses. And over the course of those 20 years, I sat down one-on-one with, with hundreds of different students, really, just to get to know them, uh, to talk with them about God, to talk with them about the gospel. Now, whenever a student gets together with uh, someone on Campus Crusade for Christ staff, uh, they know that they're going to talk about God at some point in that conversation, right? Because why else would you get with the Campus Crusade guy, right? Other than the fact that he's incredibly cool. Uh, you, uh, you, you know, why would you get together with a guy? You know you're going to talk about God. And we did, and I, I met with uh, all types of different students over the years, uh, some Christians, some non-Christians. But the most difficult type of student for me to ever get a read on uh, was the person who was churched, right? Because I, I would, I would, at some point in the conversation, I would say, well, tell me about your relationship with God. And immediately, they would start giving me their religious resume, what they've done, what they know, what their heritage was. Uh, my family and I used to go to church all the time growing up. When I was in middle school, I went down front at camp and prayed the prayer. I was confirmed when I was 13. I went through the catechism. I was baptized when I was a kid. I'm not going to, you know, I haven't been going to church in high school, but I'm kind of trying to get back into it. I'm not drinking as much, going to Bible study. But, you know, went to a Christian school growing up, so I took a lot of Bible classes, and they would just, they would give me all the stuff that they knew and all the stuff they'd done. This, and this resume thing was, it was an interesting phenomenon because it was, it was like they were trying to convince me, or, or maybe convince themselves, that they were okay with God, that God and I are tight, God and I, you know, we've got this, we've got a connection, and they just wanted to convince at least themselves. And the thing about those things, although that most of those things are really good things, they actually have nothing to do with whether or not we're okay with God, with whether or not we're right with God, that we have right standing with God, whether we're righteous, as Romans introduces it. We have, as a church, started a journey through the book of Romans, and in chapter 1, verse 17, we heard the theme to the book of Romans, and that is this, the righteousness of God is revealed or made known or manifested through the gospel, and the righteous person will live by faith in the gospel. In other words, righteousness, right standing with God, comes through faith in Jesus. Now, right after Paul gives us the good news in verse 17 in chapter 1, he launches into the bad news. Uh, Because the good news is not good news unless you know why you need it. And so, from Verse 18 in chapter 1, all the way through verse 20 in chapter 3, he's going to unpack the bad news. And and he he, he engages in this broad, sweeping, thorough argument about the unrighteousness of all of humanity, and it's a masterful legal argument. He he provides lots of incriminating evidence. Uh, He he anticipates objections, and then he answers those objections, and he doesn't let anyone off the hook. And Paul wants to say, all human beings left to themselves are not okay with God, like not righteous. And that unrighteousness takes on all kinds of different forms depending on who you are. 
depending on your background, depending on the type of person that you are. Now, in chapter one, we looked at part one of the argument, and we saw the relativist. The relativist is a man or a woman who is irreligious. He or she makes up their own truth about the world. And Romans 1 says they've exchanged God. They've traded God in for lesser things. John Piper says it's like the relativist goes into a pawn shop and hawks the glory of, you know, the the diamond of God's glory for something lesser, for a cracked marble of lesser things in life. It's like, I'd rather have the cracked marble. Here, you take the diamond. And so, the relativist is not right with God, obviously. And, and, and they don't even want to be. They don't even care. Their unrighteousness is clear. Now, last week we looked at the second part of the argument. We looked at the moralist in chapter 2. And the moralist is the person who says, I'm good with God, I'm okay with God because I'm good. Because I'm moral. Because I keep the rules. Or at least better than most people. And the problem with moralism is that the moralist doesn't keep the rules. The moralist doesn't even keep his or her own rules, much less God's rules. And so we see that the moralist proves themselves unrighteous. Morality does not bring about righteousness or right standing with God. And so Paul, in this broad sweeping argument, is going from wide down, increasingly down to narrow. He started to talk about the wider relativistic culture, and he's, now he's kind of moved through the, the good boys and girls, and he's getting more and more pointed, and today he gets very pointed, and he starts to talk about the religious people. And much of his audience that reads the, the, the letter to the Romans are the religious people. And they're saying, hey, come on, man. You're not going to accuse us of unrighteousness, are you? I mean, we're on God's team. Right? We are the last hope for righteousness and humanity. How can you accuse us, Paul, of unrighteousness? We're the church folk. And Paul's going to say, I don't have to accuse you. You accuse yourself. And Paul carts out this truckload of evidence against the religious people that accuses them of unrighteousness. He points to their knowledge. He points to their practices. He points to their advantage. And I want us to look at those, th- those three things because those three things accuse the religious folk. Knowledge, practice, advantage. Look at verse 17. Let's look at our religious knowledge for a moment. Our religious knowledge, it has a way of accusing us if we, if we apply it to everyone else and then don't apply it to ourselves. All right, so let's look at verse 17 in chapter 2. I want you to notice... Uh, that Paul is going to be talking about the Jews here. That's who he's addressing. These are the religious folks in his context. For, so for us to get at the meaning of this text today, we're going to have to look a little bit about what it means to be, meant to be Jewish, at least back then. And then we're going to have to recontextualize that truth to our own uh, religious context. Okay? So that's who he's talking to here. Now, religious knowledge. I want you to check out this resume starting in verse 70. It's, a, it's an impressive resume. But if you call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law, you boast in God, you know his will, you approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge. Now, that is a resume. This person the religious person, they call themselves a Jew. So they self-identify as, I'm on God's team. They rely on the law. So they've got God's word and they put their trust 
uh, in God's Word. They boast in God. They're like, me and God are good. We're doing good. They know His will. Literally, they know the will. They know the will of wills. They know what God, the God of the universe, wants. They approve what is excellent, so they know what's good, what's right. They're instructed by the law, so they've sat under good teaching. They've been instructed. And not only that, they're sure that they're a teacher and a guide, so they have competence to teach others. And lastly, they have in the law the embodiment of knowledge, the embodiment of truth. They know what truth looks like. They know its form. They know its beauty. It's quite a resume. Let me give you a little background on the Jews and how they got to this point. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless you. Why? So that you would be a blessing. So, so that through you, all the people of, on earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's why I'm going to bless you. Now, hundreds of years later, God has fulfilled that promise. He's made Abraham into a great nation, the nation of Israel, and now Israel is under the leadership of Moses. And God comes to Israel, and he reveals himself very clearly in a very special way. He speaks to them. Uh, He uses language to reveal uh, himself to them so they might know his character, his ways, his will, his purpose, who they are uh, in his family. All right, so on the one hand, we've been learning about this in our equipment, class that uh, many of you are part of. On one hand, there's something called general revelation, meaning God reveals himself through what's been made. We saw this in Romans 1. God clearly is seen through what he makes, through, through the creation. I saw this this week, Friday morning. I was driving to the office early, and I uh, came over this hill, and the sun had just come up over the horizon, and it was like, bam, into my windshield. It was this bright, glowing, full ball in the sky, and I saw it behind the skyline of Austin, and my first thought was, God, you are awesome. It's amazing. God is revealed in the sunrise, and yet there's something greater that God gives to his people, and we call it special revelation, and when we say special revelation, uh, we mean that God speaks very clearly to a very particular people. Now, why does he do that? To give them knowledge of himself, but also uh, that they would take that knowledge and be a blessing to the world, that they would take that knowledge and be a light uh, to the world, so that the world would look to them and say, hey, so that's what God's like. God has clearly spoken to these people, so let's look at them because they seem to know something about God, but that's not what God… That's not what is happening with the knowledge that God has given them, is it? Look again at verse 20. Second part of verse 20. Look at what they're doing with the knowledge. You have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. See, the religious people are not practicing what they preach. They are not living up to, they're not living into the knowledge that they have. In fact, their knowledge of God's law accuses them of unrighteousness. 
because they're breaking God's law that they know. John Mitchell says that their deeds deny their doctrine. God has revealed his law to them so that they would be his representatives in the world. Revelation should lead to representation, but it's not what's happening here. Uh, The unbelieving world doesn't look to them and say, bless God. Look what he's doing amongst the people. The unbelieving world looks at them and and blasphemes God. They, They mock God. And what Paul is saying to the religious folks here is that the world is speaking badly about me because of you. I can't imagine any sadder statement. I'll tell you another story about my years in campus ministry. Uh, one year, I, uh, I decided I was going to try to get something going in this fraternity uh, spiritually where, where there wasn't much spiritual interest. And uh, this it was a popular fraternity on campus. The guys were wild. They were crazy. They didn't care what anybody thought about them, but they, but they were a, a big fraternity. And I thought, you know, if I want to get something going there, uh, I need to find an insider, right? I need, a, uh, I need an active member who's a Christian, who's, you know, my advocate, who's going to stand alongside me. And one of the first guys I met in that fraternity was a guy named Johnny. And that's not his real name, but this is a real story. Uh, and... Uh, and when I went to lunch with Johnny, I was just blown away by this guy. He was this sharp Christian guy. Uh, he talked about the Bible with ease. He had led Bible studies in high school. He had been a camp counselor at a famous camp that all of you would uh, know of. And uh, he, he just, uh, he was just this guy. He, he knew that God had him in his fraternity and he wanted, wanted to make a difference there. And I left that lunch thinking, all right, I found my guy. This is awesome. I went and uh, spoke to the chapter meeting. Johnny stood up and introduced me. And then as I spoke to the whole chapter, Johnny stood next to me. Uh, And then I asked Johnny if he would invite guys to a chapter Bible study uh, that we uh, had set up. And over the next few weeks, what I learned out pretty quickly is this. Nobody liked Johnny. Nobody in that fraternity respected Johnny. Because Johnny was a big old hypocrite. Johnny got real zealous and real preachy when it came to talking about the Bible and the importance of God's Word, but his knowledge didn't affect the way he lived at all, and nobody respected that. A few months later, I was uh, driving through campus one night. I had to run a couple errands, and there were two guys walking down the middle of the street Drunk as skunks, they could hardly stand up. They both had a half-empty half 12-pack of beer just walking in the middle of the street. One of them was Johnny. And I was like, there's my guy. <laughs> right? There's my key insider. And here's the tragedy. A lot of guys in that fraternity thought God was a joke because of Johnny. And see, our religious knowledge... It just serves to accuse us of unrighteousness if we apply it to everyone else and not to ourselves. And so here's the application for us. Preach the gospel to yourself first. Preach the gospel to yourself often. You and I need Jesus. God has not given this revelation to us so that we can just beat other people over the head with it and lord it over others. He's given us this revelation that we might be transformed by it and be a blessing to others with it. It's not enough to know the right answers if the right answers don't change you. Religious knowledge accuses us 
Next, we see that our religious practice can accuse us. And, and, and our religious practice accuses us when our heart's not changed. See, there's all these outward practices, these outward signs, these outward symbols that identify the people of God. Uh, there are things that serve as what we might call boundary markers to show, you know, who, who is one of, on God's team? Who, who's in? And there, there's all kinds of stuff like that. For the Jews, the chief marker was this thing called circumcision. A circumcision was given by God to Abraham as a sign of his covenant promise with Abraham. Uh, and, and it was to be an outward testimony, an outward marker that God keeps his promises. So how do you know who's in the covenant? Who's in covenant with God? Well, circumcision was the, the practice, the marker, because the, 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 the pagan nations, the Gentile nations didn't practice circumcision. Now look at verse 25, Romans 2. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. I read that and I'm thinking, whoa. You know what Paul just did? He just redefined what it means to be a Jew there. So what, what he's saying is that Jewishness is not merely outward. Uh, Jewishness is not merely physical, it's also inward and spiritual. Now, he doesn't devalue uh, the outward sign of circumcision. He just puts its value in context. See, circumcision marks someone in covenant with God, and someone in covenant with God keeps the requirements of the covenant. And if they don't, it doesn't matter how many religious practices or signs they have, If they don't keep it, then they look like they're someone who's not in covenant with God. The greater sign of being in covenant with God is to love and obey God. And that can only come from the heart. That can only come from some sort of internal change. External practices can't cause that kind of obedience. Now, I want to read these verses again. I want to change a couple of words to help us understand it a little better in our context. Let me change the word circumcision to baptism in the word Jew to Christian. See if it makes a little more sense to us. Verse 25, for baptism indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your baptism becomes unbaptism. So if a man who is unbaptized keeps the precepts of the law, will he not, will not his unbaptism be regarded as baptism? Then he who is physically unbaptized but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and baptism but break the law. For no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly, nor is baptism outward and physical, but a Christian is one inwardly, and baptism is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see what he's saying there? He's saying just because you have the sign of the new covenant, Baptism doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian. 
You might have just gotten wet when you were a baby or when you were 12 or when you were 32. In one sense, the practice of baptism sets you apart. It marks you, but it has no value if the heart is not changed, if the heart by the Spirit of God is not converted, regenerated. Baptism only has value and significance because of the inward work of God. And what, God, what Paul is saying here is that God's signs and the things that they signify have to hang together, have to stay together. See, baptism is, a, is an external washing that is a sign pointing to an internal washing. And if they don't hang together, those two things, it doesn't matter. Now, what are some of the signs and symbols and practices that we have as Christians that mark us? Well, we mentioned baptism. There's also the practice of communion, which we'll do here uh, in a little bit. It's, it's, a, it's a peculiar practice, if you think about it. You're going to stand up, you're going to come down here, you're going to take some bread, and you're going to say, this is the body of Christ. What? <laughs> this cup is the blood of Jesus. It's a, it's a strange practice if it's not connected to something in here, right? There's the practice of church membership. There's the practice of going to Bible studies. There's the practice of confession, singing, worship. There's symbols. You may wear a cross around your neck. You may have a cross on your ring. You may have the all-important symbol of the fish on your car. So if you do, drive nice. You better drive nice. None of these signs, none of these symbols, none of these practices are what make us righteous. In fact, if they're not coupled with, if they're not joined with real heart change, uh, then they're just flair. Remember flair in office space? I'm sorry about the lowbrow cultural reference here, but uh, for some reason I kept thinking about office space this week and thinking about flair. If you haven't seen the movie, Jennifer Aniston's character is a waitress and her boss wants her to wear more flair on her uniform, which is like goofy, silly buttons all over her uniform, uh, just to show that she loves her job. And she hates that because she knows that how good of a waitress or waiter you are does not depend on, on the amount of flair you wear. Flair doesn't make you better at your job. Flair just makes you more adorned right? Obnoxiously adorned in this case. And our religious practices, they're just obnoxious adornment if we don't have a changed heart. They're just flair. They don't make us righteous. In fact, in fact, they only serve to accuse us and draw attention to our unrighteousness because we're using the flair to say, hey, we're on God's team, and then we're acting just the opposite, And our religious practices have no power to change the heart, to make us righteous. Only God can do those things. If if you and I invoke religious symbols, signs, practices in a superstitious way, like there's some kind of little magical rabbit's foot that will protect us from the judgment of God, they only serve to condemn us. For like, oh yeah, I'm on God's team because I was baptized. No, the question is, is your heart baptized? All right, last thing. Our religious knowledge can accuse us. Our religious practices can confuse us. Or can confuse us. Our, our knowledge can accuse us. Our practices can accuse us. And finally, uh, our religious advantage can accuse us. Our advantages, religiously speaking, end up accusing us if they don't lead to faith uh, in Jesus. Now, at the beginning of chapter 3, 
Paul anticipates some objections to come from the Jews. You know, it's a courtroom argument, and he knows he's talking to his own people here, and he knows what the objections are going to be because he was a Pharisee. He was one of these guys that found his righteousness in knowing and keeping the law. He was one of these guys that says, I'm circumcised, so obviously I'm on God's team. And so he anticipates some objections, and he, he puts them in the form of questions that get asked by an imaginary objector in the first eight verses of chapter 3. Now, I'm going to try to sum this up very quickly and very simply. It's a complex, confusing text, these first eight verses uh, in chapter 3, but they talk about uh, religious advantage. And let me see, for the sake of time here, let me see if I can sum them up quickly. In fact, last night I was pouring over these thinking, I don't think I can explain these well because it's it's difficult. But check it out. The first objection is in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. First objection. The religious person might say, well, then what, what advantage has the Jew, Paul? What's the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So the first objection is, Paul, are you saying there's no advantage in being Jewish? Are you saying there's no value in circumcision? And Paul's saying, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm actually saying the advantage is huge. He's saying, you guys were entrusted with the oracles of the living God, the very words of the God of the universe. The advantage is huge. But that also means the responsibility is huge. To whom much is entrusted, much is required. All right, second objection, verse 3 and 4. Well, what if some were unfaithful, Paul? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. It might be more appropriate to say, Paul's saying, when he says by no means, it's like not in a million years. Like, no way. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Here's the second objection. Paul, are you saying that since some of God's people are not faithful, are you saying that God hasn't been faithful to keep his covenant promises because, because he didn't bring everyone along towards faith? And, and Paul said, no, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, there's always been unbelievers in every believing community. There's always been people who grew up enjoying the benefits of the covenant, but who end up rejecting the God of the covenant. Uh, There's there's always people who grow up enjoying the things of God who never come to faith in God. Not everyone who calls themselves a Christian actually ends up being a Christian. And what Paul is saying here, that doesn't mean God is faithful. That just means that those people have not put their faith in the faithful God. It's not God who's unfaithful. It's those people, and God rightly judges them. Third objection, verse 5 through 8. In in verse 5 through 8, he says essentially the same thing a a, a few different ways. Verse 5, but Paul, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Here's the basic objection in these three or four verses. Paul, if you are saying that everyone is unrighteous, including us, including the Jews, including the ones, the religious people, the ones on God's team, and you're saying only God is righteous, then why don't we just sin as much as we can? 
Why don't we just be as unrighteous as possible because that will magnify the righteousness and grace of God? Why don't we tell as many lies as possible because our lies are going to make God's truth look better, right? Why don't we do as much evil as we can so that God would look better? And Paul says, you know what? I'm not, that's the dumbest thing I've never heard. <laughs> I'm not going to deal with that argument. Your condemnation is just. Here's a summary of these eight verses. If a person responds to the religious advantages that they have by taking advantage of God. If a person responds to the faithfulness of God with unfaith. If a person responds to the righteousness of God by acting unrighteously. To the truth of God by lying. To the goodness of God by doing evil. Then their advantage does them no good. In fact, their advantage condemns them, doesn't it? Because despite their incredible advantage, they missed God. See, if someone is repeatedly exposed to light, and then they respond to the light with darkness, like, how great is the darkness? How great is that darkness? I think religious unrighteousness might be the worst kind of unrighteousness, because religious unrighteousness incubates and grows in this greenhouse of spiritual privilege, spiritual advantage. I grew up in a uh, family that believed in Jesus, that honored the Bible, that went to church. I remember when I was a kid, almost every night, my family would gather around my parents' bed right before bedtime, and we would kneel, and my dad would read a psalm, and he would pray, right? I remember going to vacation Bible school as a kid. I I learned the gospel story like on a felt board, right? I was baptized in in middle school. I had a youth minister who uh, uh, invested in me and discipled me. I didn't even know what that meant. In college, I had friends that helped me learn to apply the gospel to my actual life. I had a mentor in college who took me through Romans and John and 2 Timothy Timothy and Hebrews. I had incredible advantage. And listen, if someone like me with the advantages that I had, if someone like me ends up missing God, if someone like me with the advantages I have of learning the gospel end up not trusting in Jesus, then my advantage only serves to accuse me. God could justly say to me, I gave you every opportunity on a silver platter to know me, and you missed me. You missed me. Advantage does not save us if there is no faith in Jesus, if there's no transformation, and we can't transform ourselves. Don't put your trust in religion. Some of you have been tempted to do that. Religion cannot make you righteous. It cannot make you acceptable to God. You are not made righteous by your knowledge, by your practices, by your advantage. Righteousness only comes when we're made new, right? At best, all that religion can do is kind of make us sort of improved. But in Romans, we're seeing God doesn't want to just improve us. He wants to make us new. Only God can do that. The Jews actually knew that. I want to close with this. Listen to this. It was in their scriptures. Ezekiel 36. It's in our scriptures too. Only God can make you new. Listen to the connection between Ezekiel 36 and what we've heard today. Verse 23. God says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned, which has been blasphemed among the nations, in which you have profaned, religious people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. 
I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, baptism language, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. There's the newness and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone, that dead heart, that cold heart. Uh, I'll remove that from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh, a warm, beating heart that's alive to God. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, God's promise was to take this religious people who were unrighteous, who had profaned the name of God, and his promise was he's going to circumcise their heart so that they might obey him for real, like from the heart. And this was going to happen under the Messiah, under the Christ. And we know that Jesus is that Christ. Uh, Jesus is the only one who kept the law perfectly. Jesus is the true Israelite. Jesus is the true Jew. Jesus is the only one whose praise was not from men, but was from God. And Jesus, this one, died for the unrighteousness of all types of people, even the religious people. And when we put our trust in Jesus, he baptizes, circumcises our heart. He joins himself to us by his spirit in eternal union. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see our religious resume. He sees Jesus' perfect resume, doesn't he? Jesus is the only one who can make us righteous, approved, accepted. And then our praise is not from men, it's from God. Hallelujah. That's great news. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.